Good morning, Christ Church. My name is Paul Fowler. I'm the new campus pastor here at Lake Forest. It's good to be with you all. Uh, also, a special greeting to those of you watching at Crossroads, Highland Park, and Vernon Hills, and a greetings to those of you watching online. So, no matter what stage of life we might find ourselves in, we all have things we need to get done, we want to get done, we have to get done. Now, for some of those things, it's identical. Right? We all need to brush our, brush our teeth. We all should be brushing our teeth. We all need to take a shower. We all should be taking a shower. One of my kids finds that a debatable topic. But depending on the stage of life that we're in, there might be very different things that we're trying to work through and that we have to work on. Perhaps if you're at the stage where you are going into the office every day, you're one of the lucky people, you still get to work from home, you have a set of to-dos, you got a list of things you need to get to, emails, meetings, phone calls, Whatever it may be, lots of things you have to get done. Maybe you're at the stage where perhaps you are in school, so there's different tests you need to get through to get to the next level or the next school or different things you need to do to get that job or find a place to live. Maybe you're at the stage where you're at the home, so you are managing details with maybe kids or maybe pets or maybe plants or whatever it may be, things that you need to get done to keep everything running and running smoothly. Perhaps you're at a place where you've got a little bit more time right? Where do we want to travel? Where do I want to volunteer with the time that I have? All these different things. We all have things we need to get done, we want to get done, we have to get done. And if that wasn't enough, the problem happens when stuff starts coming at us sideways, right? You might have your to-do list you wanted to accomplish today at work, but your boss actually has what you're going to try to accomplish today at work. You might have thought, maybe this weekend I'm going to relax, it's going to be a great time, but maybe your spouse or the kids need this or got to go to a birthday party, whatever it may be, now your schedule's filled up. There's good things that kind of come at us sideways on this, like maybe you're engaged and you're getting married, this is great, we got to plan this wedding and spend all this money, you're going to have a kid, oh my goodness, what have we done, now we're going to have to take care of it and all this different work. Sometimes there's more difficult things that come at us, right, something's wrong with the car, something's broken at the house or we're remodeling, maybe something medically happens, so we need to see a doctor, we need to see a specialist, all these different things that we have to get done. Things we need to do, we want to do, we have to do. Now, I don't know how you keep track of this. There's plenty of different ways that you can keep track of your list of things that you have to do. There's apps for this. Maybe you have a very full calendar, use your inbox. There's plenty of books that you can buy, workshops that you can go to, to try to just get things done, to try to cross things off that list. For myself, I know when I kind of set out what I want to do for the day, if I get to dinner and I have accomplished all those things, it's a good day. I feel good. Maybe you feel that same way. Maybe if you set out to start your day and you don't quite get to those things, you feel somewhat frustrated. Didn't get to it. Maybe after dinner, I got to get back to work. I got to get these things done. What's interesting about that is researchers have actually studied, we get a little bit of a dopamine hit in our minds when we get things done, when we actually cross things off the list, right? Doesn't it feel good to get stuff done? There was that guy a few years ago, that Navy officer, he was like, if you make your bed the first thing you do in the day, you're going to get a win, it's going to feel good, and you're going to keep on winning as you go through the day. Then the pandemic happened, and please don't make the bed, I'm going to lay here today. <laughs> but it does feel good to get stuff done, Right? But here's an interesting thing. There's kind of a byproduct of this uh, idea of feeling good when we get stuff done that they call completion bias, right? Which is this notion that now it's easy to focus on small, unimportant tasks because it feels good to get them done, but the big things that would really help us make a difference, that would really help us move on, that 
project at work, that project around the house, you kind of put to the side because I need more time to get there. I just can't get that done yet. So we focus on small things, but we really don't break through because we're not worried about the right things. We're not accomplishing those things. And this got me wondering, is it possible we do this in our belief with God, our relationship with him? Where we kind of, because of the busyness of life and all the things that we have to do, we say, all right, I can do these things. I can accomplish these, these things. It feels good, right? I go to church. That feels good. I read my Bible. That's good. And these are all good things, but we don't feel like we're getting any further. We don't feel like we know God more. We don't feel like we're growing in our faith. Do we have completion bias when it comes to our relationship with God? So today we're going to be talking about Jesus is the rebel. And what does that mean that Jesus would be considered a rebel? Well, we'd have to ask ourselves, what even is a rebel? It's become quite cool these days to refer to Jesus as a rebel. He would be for this. He would be against that. He would do this. He would say this. He'd be with this. And he may or may not be or do all those things. I don't necessarily speak for him. I try to learn from him. So I'm not here to say what he did or he didn't as it relates to all those things. But today we're going to be looking at John chapter 5 as we try to understand what does it mean that we would call Jesus a rebel. So I asked a bigger question. What is even a rebel? Why, who do we look to as a rebel? And if you were to Google this, like I did, who's the top 10 rebels that are out there, you kind of come across a pretty typical list that you would find. And so I'll give a few of them here today. And I will say that historians and movies love to talk about these rebels. Uh, for example, if you think about the movie Braveheart and William Wallace, he is fighting against the English, right? He is an epic rebel because he's fighting against an epic system. But man, they kill that guy. He's dead. So that's kind of what a rebel is, someone who's struggling against something that ultimately leads to their demise. Other rebels that have been mentioned in this list that I saw is Dr. Martin Luther King fighting against racism. Eventually, he'd be assassinated. Nelson Mandela fighting against apartheid in South Africa. He'd be in prison for many years. Gandhi fighting also against the English who would later be assassinated. So if a rebel is someone who is fighting against somewhat of an epic system that ultimately leads to their demise, well, Jesus would fit into this category, right? He would eventually die and be crucified. But what was he fighting against? What was his struggle about? And as it relates to our passage today in John chapter 5, I think there's something specifically that he's struggling against that's helpful for us. Now, I wouldn't say that Jesus was necessarily struggling against the Roman government. When he sits in front of Pilate, he doesn't list his grievances. He doesn't really get messed up in the local Jewish politics with King Herod. You know, John the Baptist loses his head on that one. Who does he most fight against? Well, if you went to Sunday school, you'd have this answer. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The local temple leaders of the day. Who were the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were kind of like the local pastors. You know, they kind of knew all the things, kind of running the service. And why didn't they get it is what I always wonder. You would have think if there was somebody that was to say, we knew Jesus was the Messiah the whole time. All you guys were wrong. I told you he was going to come. We read the Bible, but they didn't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees just don't get it. Why did they not get it? And is it possible that we are doing the same exact things that they're doing, that we don't truly understand or know who Jesus is? Well, let's look at John chapter 5 as we consider Jesus the rebel. And before we kind of jump into here in verse 1, one thing I will say that 
When you're studying the Bible, it's important to know what kind of genre of literature that you're in, right? Is it poetry? Is it wisdom literature? Is it kind of an argument where we're trying to figure out the flow? Uh, whenever you're studying narrative, which is what we're going to look at today, my small group and I, we like to look of it. It's, it's like a movie. Who's the major characters? Who's the minor characters? Right? What's their dialogue? What are they saying? And one thing that's great about narrative when you're studying in the Bible is look for the conflict. What is the thing that they're kind of fighting about? What is it building up to? What's kind of the new thing that happens because of what we see? And that's how we can try to get meaning or try to understand why this passage is in Scripture. So John chapter 5, verse 1, if you are there, it says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. There's a feast. There's going to be a lot of people there. Verse 2, there's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool. Great. It's a pool day. I love the pool. Which is, in Aramaic, is called Bethesda. There's five color colonnades there. And in verse 3, what we find out is there was a great number of disabled people that used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So this is a unique pool. Why is this pool special? Well, supposedly, and whether it's true or not, I don't really know. I'm a little bit doubtful. This pool had the ability, if you were the first person that got onto this pool, you would be healed. First one in, wins the game, whatever ailment that you have, you would be fixed, you would be healed, your life would be changed. And so we narrow in on our passage in verse 5. There was one who was there who'd been an invalid or walking impaired for 38 years. It's a long time. It's my whole entire life. I look a little bit more run down, but you know, 38 years that this guy had been there. This is our person that is in our story. This is who Jesus is about to talk to. And look what he says there in verse 6. He says to him, and it's kind of an interesting question, do you want to get well? All right, well, Jesus is being a good healer. You know, he's a good doctor, establishing good doctor-patient relationship, establishing consent. Do you want to get well? And look at the guy's response in verse 7. Sir, he replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. So he's explaining the rules of the game to Jesus, right? The person who knows everything and knows everything about this guy, he's explained, and here's the rules. First one in wins. Because whenever he's trying to get there, it says in verse 7, someone else goes down ahead of him. So what does Jesus say to him in verse 8? Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, it says in verse 9, he picked up his mat and he walked. My guess is at this point, he is probably walking around. He's probably jumping around. He's running around like a kid who just got some new shoes, showing how fast he can go. An exciting time for him. Maybe he's dancing, doing the Hebrew jerk, and everyone's putting it on social media, and everyone's excited for him. This is a great time. It's an exciting part of the movie, if we think of it like that. But cue the bad music. What's the second part of verse 9? The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. Now, we don't celebrate the Sabbath as much as they did at that time where pretty much everything would shut down. These days, we just don't get to go to Chick-fil-A today for a spicy chicken sandwich. But during the Sabbath, everything was closed. Everybody was resting. Everybody was following the rules, doing what they were supposed to do. What is Jesus doing? Why is he doing this? So look what happens next in verse 10. So the Jews, the temple leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they say to the man who's been healed, this is great. We're so excited for you. Let's go on a walk tomorrow. Not so fast, right? That's not what they say. 
That's not these kind of characters. You just kind of always wonder about these type of people. You know, what, what was their idea that they are, you know, the religious police and this guy's just, his life's been changed and now they're going to go up and explain the rules. I imagine this group had seen Jesus come in and they were like, oh, he's so perfect. Everyone loves him. You know, heal some people. They think you're the son of God, right? So frustrated. They probably faint when they see this guy get healed. They see him pick up his mat and they start complaining, kids these days, they don't respect the Sabbath, carrying mats around, you know. These guys are frustrated. They go up to him and they say in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So what is this guy's response? He replied, verse 11, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, verse 12, who is this fellow that told you to pick it up and walk? There's a little bit of comedy that's happening here. In the last four verses, it's been said five times, pick up your mat. Pick up your mat and walk, right? Pick up your mat and walk. Who told you to pick up your mat? You can't pick up your mat. This guy told me to pick up your mat. Why are you picking up your mat? What is going on here? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's forcing the issue. He's causing a conflict, trying to get everybody's attention. And it's worked. Everybody's upset. There's bad things that are about to go on now. But for what purpose? Look down in verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted them. But get what Jesus says next in verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. These guys are totally upset. When Jesus says, I'm just doing what my father does, those are fighting words. Now they're angry. It's a little bit different for us today because we pray like Jesus taught us to, our Father who art in heaven. But at this time, at this point, with how they thought about how things were supposed to happen and what you were supposed to do, these were fighting words. Game on, fire, let's fight, let's throw down. They're very upset and they wanted to kill him. Jesus wasn't killed because of a minor theological difference that they were disagreeing about. He claimed to be God and they wanted to kill him. They could have no part of him. So if we were to stop here and I were to say, we're all dismissed, this is great, we learned something today, and we were to tell ourselves, ah, I get what Jesus is doing. It's a new rule. What we're supposed to do on the Sabbath is do good things. We all go home, we all do good things. That feels good, right? That's a good thing to do. The people that we did good things for would be like, this is great, I feel good, and we'd all feel much better about that. That'd be great, it'd be a nice ending. You could get out early. But that's not the point of what's happening. Jesus didn't cause this whole situation, create this drama, get everybody's attention, be a rebel, so that we could all just add a new clause to the Sabbath day. Do good things, new rule. In fact, if we were to do that, we'd be just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We would be looking for the rules, trying to find the thing that we need to do so that we can do all the right things and check all the boxes. We're really busy and let's do this. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. So what is Jesus trying to say? Thankfully, Jesus goes on for another 28 verses trying to explain what's going on. I encourage you to read the rest of John chapter 5 today. But I think we can most simply find it down in verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to get to. Four times he's going to talk about belief as you go through the rest of John chapter 5. It's not about doing the right things. 
It's about believing in him. If it was about who had done the most right things or who knew the most about the Bible or who could do all the best things and followed the most rules and didn't do any of the bad things, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would win, hands down. These guys knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. When Jesus is near the sheep's gate telling this guy to pick up his mat, you know where their minds go? Where all of ours go, right? Jeremiah 17, 21, right? That's what you're thinking, right? The law that says, don't carry around your mats and don't carry it through the gate. These guys are thinking, oh no, we're getting close to someone breaking a rule here. We have to stop the show. It's about doing the right things. If there was to be a Bible trivia contest today and it was to be Christ Church Lake Forest versus the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we would lose. It'd be 99 to 1, and the one point was Mike Woodruff because he was with us for a little bit. (laughs) It's not about who knows the most. It's not about who does the most right things. It's not about who's the best, who has perfect church attendance, who can memorize the most scriptures. What I'm not saying is don't do those things. Those are good things. You should do those things. But if we think that's what saves us, if we get moved off from belief into doing things, we've missed the point. There's a couple ways that I think we get this wrong that I'm going to share before we close out our time today. And the first one is this. It's believing in our to-do list rather than believing in God. Believing in our to-do list rather than believing in God. We're all very busy. We all have a lot of things we got to get done. Stuff coming out of sideways, things we need to get through. It's not easy to do everything. So it can be quite easy to kind of go into a spiritual autopilot and go to church on Sunday or I go to my group or I read my Bible, all good things. But sometimes what happens is we feel good when we do those things, and that's great, but to the point that we start to measure our spiritual walk with God based on that. Oh, I've done these things. I feel good. You know what that means? God loves me. God's satisfied with me. That's not how it works. We cannot make God love us anymore by the good things that we do. He loves us. We can't repay God for the salvation that he's already given to us by trying to do all the right things, by trying to do all the good things. He's already given it to us. He's already died on the cross for us. It's about believing in him, not believing that good things will earn his favor or earn his love. The second way that we, I think we get this wrong is we start to do everything for God instead of everything with God. And this is a little bit nuanced here, but what I think it's easiest to say is, if you know our mission, it's to help people discover life with God. You don't come in here and we say, we're going to help you discover life with more things to do. You know, who wants to go to that church? We're going to help you discover life with more rules. Why would we want that? It's about discovering life with God. Not doing these things for God as if somehow he's there separate and we're over here. Such as we have our our church life and then we have all the other things that we need to do out there. So what do I mean by this? What am I encouraging you to, to do, challenging you? When you come into church today, it's not just you're doing this for God. Say, God, help me understand what you want me to do. Help me understand that I might learn something today. When we read God's word, it's not about crossing it off the list and just getting it done. We say, okay, God, what do you have to teach me today? I want to hear from you, God. I need to learn. I need to grow. And not only that, like I was mentioning, it's not about we have these God things we do and then we have everything else we need to do in life. You think about the struggles 
in your marriage or with your kids or at your job or whatever it might be. Life with God means, okay, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Please work on my heart, work on their heart. Help me understand, help me love and serve. It's about life with God in every way and every purpose. He's a God that knows us and loves us and wants to be with us, not separate from us, not crossing off the list, but engaging with him. You know, if we're to see ourselves as anybody in this story today, perhaps we could see ourselves as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? It's easy to create a system and a set of rules and try to do all the right things. Perhaps not. I also don't think we would see ourselves as Jesus, right? He's perfect. We're definitely not. I think we most easily see ourselves in the guy who's been at the pool for 38 years, hoping, wishing that things would get better, that he would see a breakthrough, that he's doing all the right things in all the right way and hoping there's going to be a difference. Something's going to change. Something's going to happen. But just doing the same things because that's not what it's about. He has a short conversation with God that radically transforms his life, that changes him. You see, it's not about the things that we do that he might love us more. It's not about believing in those things that we would be more saved, that we would have our things for God, but we don't know him. He rebelled against all that, not that we would recreate it, but that we would have life with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you came to give us freedom, that we might know you, that we might experience your love. Help us, Lord God, as we hear from you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.